thinking about it. Good morning again, everybody. How are we? <laughs> so um, over these past four weeks, uh, this is the fifth week, we've been thinking about this theme of devoted, the earliest church, the earliest group of followers of Jesus as they met together, and uh, this passage in Acts chapter 2. And I'm kind of wrapping it up, or maybe I'm just opening it out this morning, let's see. And I just want to give you a little bit of context in case you haven't been with us for those weeks or uh, you've missed some of them. You'll know that um, after Jesus ascended to heaven, he told the disciples, this whole group of people, to gather together and to wait And so they did. They gathered together in this upper room and they prayed. And then on a day, which we call the day of Pentecost, on a day, they were all together in one place. And suddenly in that room was the sound of a rushing wind. I don't know how you feel when you read the Bible stories. Whether you think, I wish I would have been there. Or whether you equally feel, I wish I wouldn't have been there. Because I don't know what it felt like to be in that room. I mean, it's not like anything weird hasn't already happened the last few weeks. (laughs) To be there waiting in fear, maybe for your life, feeling a bit uncertain, disappointed, just not knowing. And suddenly, there's the sound of a rushing mighty wind. And it comes through the building, and it comes upon everybody. And I imagine that they started to feel it because you can't have a rushing mighty wind and not notice. I imagine they looked at each other, what's going on? And then tongues of fire started to rest over every person. I mean, if the rushing mighty wind wasn't slightly frightening, the tongues of fire would definitely have been, and hopefully they didn't have a fire officer because they'd have been on the extinguisher, wouldn't they, straight away? And they're just in this place. And they find themselves speaking out In all sorts of languages, they have no idea what they're saying. It's an amazing day. And they go out into the marketplace and the streets, and there's people gathered from all the nations around for the Passover. Sorry, not for the Passover, for the festivals. Anyway, and they're from all around in the place. And these people are going, well, we can understand what they're saying. We're hearing them in our own language. It's not like we learned some French in school and now we can understand it. It's like we hear them speaking to us in our own language, but they're not of us. They're not our people. What's going on? We don't understand it. What's happening with all these people? The tongues of fire and the rushing mighty wind and they're speaking and Peter stands up because people are starting to say maybe they're drunk. He stands up. Peter I've never heard of Jesus. I don't know. I've never, never spoken to him. Don't, don't put us in the same box together. I, I don't know who it is. Peter stands up and he says, we're not drunk. Let me explain this to you. The prophet Joel said that in that day, the Holy Spirit would come on all people, men and women. People would see dreams and visions. There would be signs and wonders that would occur on that day. And this is that day when the Holy Spirit has been poured out onto the world. He says, let me explain to you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. How he was the fulfillment of all the scriptures. How he came and he died. 
He was crucified by the Roman authorities. But he was raised to life again. And something happened on that day because this was no regular talk in the synagogue. This was a talk explaining the scripture, explaining Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of those gathered there says, what must we do to be saved? The Holy Spirit brought conviction upon them. What must we do to be saved? Peter says, repent, be baptized. Believe in the name of Jesus, all of you will be saved. And on that day, 3,000 people were added to the church. Now what? 3,000 people. And immediately after that, it says, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. Now, this is a kind of revival situation, isn't it? This is something out with our normal experience. This is something that's just special for that day. Or is it? Because it, I hear the stories from India where this is still true, where thousands of people are coming to know Jesus, where, sorry, lost my voice, where signs and wonders are being done in the name of Jesus, where there's new churches being planted every single day. And that's true in parts of Africa. Parts of Africa are very hostile to the gospel. But other parts of Africa, thousands of people coming to know Jesus. It's happening in Latin America. It's just Europe and North America. It's kind of struggling a little bit. But it's happened here before. It's happened in the Welsh Revival when people have just come to the preaching of the gospel, fallen down on their knees to worship, being convicted of sin and join the church. It's happened in the Hebridean Revival not even so long ago, 1940s was the last revival up there, where people were just praying and others were coming, falling down on their knees on the roads, walking hundreds of miles to get to places, staying night after night after night under the power of the Holy Spirit and knowing Jesus and signs and wonders were being done. This is the context. And those believers devoted themselves, as we've been looking at over these last weeks, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They could not get enough of the scriptures that spoke of Jesus, the Messiah. They could not get enough of the stories from the apostles of what Jesus said, what Jesus was like, the stories Jesus told, the kind of person Jesus was. Do you remember that time? When that woman came in, the one with her long hair, the one that was so unseemly, and she bathed Jesus' feet. And her life was transformed by the love of Jesus. Do you remember that? Do you remember when we were walking along the road and there was that horrible tax collector? What was his name? Zacchaeus, that's his name. Do you remember when Jesus noticed him out of all the crowds and Jesus said, Zacchaeus, Let's have a conversation about your heart because you matter to me. Do you remember when he said that this amount of faith can move a mountain? Do you remember that? I wonder what that means. They devoted themselves to knowing Jesus, to knowing everything about him. They devoted themselves to fellowship, not to a cup of tea and a green cup. Although I got into trouble at the 9.15 for saying that because Kathy apparently still has green cups. <laughs> She's wondering if she has retro fellowship as a result of having retro cups. Real love, real forgiveness, real working through stuff that's challenging. 
real caring for one another, real sacrificial laying down our lives for one another, that kind of depth of fellowship that's born out of the love that Jesus has for us. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to that meal that reminded them of God's deliverance in the past, of what Jesus had only just done for them, that he'd broken his body and shed his blood out of love and forgiveness and where mercy and truth met at the cross for our salvation, that hope of what is to come, of the kingdom of God. And they devoted themselves to prayer, to speaking with God who they could access through Jesus for the first time, to listening to the words of the Lord through Scripture, through the Holy Spirit, just devoted themselves to talking to the one they loved above everyone else. They devoted themselves. There was passion, there was commitment, there was resilience, there was faithfulness in their hearts to the Lord. You know, we can hear all these things. I can hear all of them. And nothing can change. We said right at the beginning, if this is just a sermon series, then it's pointless. Because something needs to happen in here that we start to believe that actually, if we want this town to know Jesus, which I think we probably do, and if we want this country to be transformed, which it slightly needs, by Jesus, and if we want to be in Europe, not as a political statement, but as a place where the revival of God is taking place, and oh my goodness, do the European countries of our world need that? Where there's hardness and cynicism and secularism and an ever-increasing presence of Islam in the midst of that as well. Then we need to be devoted. We need to believe that being devoted to the Word of God, to the people of God to the things that God gives us to share with one another, to prayer, is the main thing. And what you think in here changes how you behave. In every aspect of my life, what I think changes how I behave. So if I start to believe that these things are the things that will change stuff in the power of the Holy Spirit, that will change how I behave. You know, it says after this, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The next phrase, everyone was filled with awe. Everyone was filled with awe. I read this quote to you at the beginning, so I read it to you again. From Francis Chan's Letters to the Church. In our impatient culture, we want to experience biblical awe without biblical devotion. Yeah, I'd sign myself up for that. I want to see all sorts of amazing things happen. But sometimes I don't want to do what it costs to see that happen. I don't want to be devoted because there's lots of other stuff in my life that I like. And anyway, I'm quite self-reliant, so I don't always choose God. I'm sure you don't either. Where does our power come from? Because it's so not our own strategizing and wisdom. How do we make decisions? Is it in reference to the Lord? Where is our hope and our confidence coming from at this point in our nation's story where it's pretty unsettled? 
I drove along the M62 yesterday, and I felt I got really taken aback because on the big signs, which I probably shouldn't have been thinking about, it said, uh, after November the 1st, your EU papers may need to change, or your freight papers may need to change. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is real. <laughs> it hit me. Fortunately, I carry on driving. But, you know, where does our hope come from? Where does our confidence come from? Because it can't come from the things that we think have been secure. It can only come from our devotion to God. And devotion leads to awe. And awe is an amazing thing. I've spent part of the week just thinking about this. I don't know, just don't even know how to describe awe. Really don't. I want to read you a story because in some ways this, this captures something of what awe is. It's from Genesis chapter 28. And it's a story about Jacob. And I'm going to read it all to you because it, it kind of makes sense. So Jacob's not in a good place particularly at this point in the story. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. That's because he didn't have a mobile phone to light the way or anything like that. And there were not any streetlights. So when the sun had set, it was dark, like probably dark. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He'd clearly forgotten his travel pillow. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the south and the north. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Just for me, that captures something of what awe is like. That there is a fear, and then a kind of recognition that this is the God who loves us. So it's not a fear that ends in running away, but a fear that is rightly given to the holy God, the awesome, powerful God. Where the presence of God is, that is where awe is. And that word awesome has been hijacked. I will not say which nation has hijacked it, but they hijacked it. And so we, we don't really feel it anymore, that awesome is to do with God. And actually only to do with God. Only God is worthy of awe in the way that we're talking about here. And Jacob found himself in that place. And the ladder that went up and down to heaven. And the angels going up and down the ladder. And, and God, God was standing at the top of the ladder. God spoke. Surely the presence of God is in this place. And throughout the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 15, you might just like to look at that. 
Exodus 15 and verse 11. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? And then if you turn over to chapter 34 of Exodus and verse 10. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. And Deuteronomy says the same again. Awesome is always connected to God and to the wonders that he is able to do. Excuse me. Too much speaking this week. And we remember when we think of Isaiah, that he went into the temple when King Isaiah died. Isaiah found himself in the temple and the glory of God filled the temple. The awesome presence of God filled the temple. And Isaiah could just say, woe is me, because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. And Ezekiel when he saw a vision of the presence of God, could scarcely describe it. it. talks about wings and wheels and eyes. And I saw someone with the likeness of... It just had to be about 10 stages away because he didn't know how to describe the presence of God. And we see that in Revelation, don't we, as well? The glory of God, the awesome glory of God. Now, as I was preparing this, it reminded me of a song that we used to sing in our youth group many moons ago. And it said this, Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. I can feel his mighty power and his grace. I can hear the brush of angel wings. I see glory on each face. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. I was used to saying I can hear the rush of angel wings. I didn't realize what the right words were. There's something about the presence of God where we sense that he is there. We sense that the angels are present with us. Now, I've had a couple of occasions when I've been playing my flute and I've just went, where did the orchestra come from? There's no orchestra. But we join in with the worship of heaven. And just sometimes you have a little sense of being in that place. Maybe you have found yourself in the presence of God and you've come out and there's been glory, something of God about you. Sorry, that's really difficult. My first experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit was on a street corner in Walton-on-Thames in Surrey the dark (laughs) and I went into school the next morning and uh, (coughs) I went to my Latin class somebody needed to and uh, there was a girl called Eleanor Eleanor Booth she was called and she said to me what has happened to you she wasn't a Christian what's happened to you Now, there's something about being in the presence of our awesome God where we engage with beyond ourselves, beyond natural, beyond material, beyond what we can touch and feel and see in the presence of our awesome God. At that point, they were filled with awe because they were in the presence of God. The presence of God 
And out of that, it says, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Did you notice in those Old Testament scriptures, it always connected awe with wonders, with the power of God. And they just became naturally supernatural. Like they weren't working it up. They weren't thinking, oh, we need to try really hard. Or we've just read the textbook that says, if we're a church like this, we need to do signs and wonders. It can help themselves. The apostles just did signs and wonders. It was a normal part of their experience of the church. And I want us to look in the New Testament. If you turn to Mark chapter 16, it's the last verse of Mark. And it says this, Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. And let's turn into Acts, which is the story of those first apostles and disciples. But it says in verse 22 of chapter 2, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. And then chapter 2, verse 43, we've already read. And then chapter 4 and verse 30. Helen read to us this. They pray, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And I think that God heard their prayer, because chapter 5 and verse 12, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, And then in chapter 6 and verse 8, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. And chapter 8 and verse 6, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. And that's confirmed again in verse 13 of that chapter. Acts chapter 14 And verse 3, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. In chapter 15 and verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through him. And then if you turn to Romans chapter 15, Verse 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse He says, Paul, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. (laughs) And then lastly, in Hebrews. Seems to have escaped from my Bible. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. I read all those to you because there's so many of them, and that's not all of them. 
because it's normal, because it was part of their experience. They knew Jesus. They were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. They preached the gospel, and signs and wonders and miracles followed them wherever they were, establishing the church, revealing something of the kingdom of God. In Webster's Dictionary, it defines a miracle as an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. I don't mind that. It also defines the supernatural as departing from what is usual or normal, especially so as to appear to transcend the laws of nature. I don't mind a bit of that either sometimes. See, I've been doing a bit of thinking and reading around this. Signs and wonders, healing and deliverance, remarkable experiences are a normal expression of the presence and power of God. They are a normal expression of the presence and power of God. Because where God is, it is supernatural. (laughs) He created all these things. He knows how they work. What was happening in Acts was a demonstration of the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of God. Jesus says in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, the kingdom is near. The kingdom is near. And then it goes on almost falling over itself as Jesus heals the sick. Paralyzed people are able to walk again. People who are oppressed by demons are set free. Even nature submits to Jesus' authority. The storm is stilled. The packed lunch feeds over 5,000 people. Jesus walks on the water. The kingdom, the authority, the presence of Jesus... I don't know about you, but I think we need to see a little bit more of that. You know, there are so many stories coming out of many other nations across the world of exactly this kind of thing, of New Testament church, that they raise up the name of Jesus, they preach the gospel, and signs and wonders follow the preaching of the name of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit. And in our culture, it's tough. It's hard. We're cynical. We're rational, we're scientific, aren't we? And oh my word, that's so much better, of course, isn't it? I'm not sure that it is. But something about our time spent in the presence of Jesus will impact what we see. I think it's no surprise that we've had two prayer and fasting days, and there will be more, by the way. And at the end of both of those, one of them was staff team and one of them was all of us. At the end of those two days, Phil and I have had both the opportunity and the confidence to pray for two people within our church with real need for healing. Now, it's not about what, what then happened. It's something about being in the presence of Almighty God that allows you to build a confidence within yourself that as you've prayed, as you've sought him, as you've worshipped, as you've been in his presence, that this God is awesome. He is holy. He is powerful. He is able. And these things which to us are like a blank wall that we cannot get through are not for him. Please put your hand up if ever you've walked on water. But it wasn't a problem for Jesus. And it wasn't a problem for Peter whilst he looked at Jesus. We need to spend that time in the presence of God if we want to be filled with awe and see these things. It's also something about evangelism. As they go out and speak the name of Jesus. I am partway through reading a book called Scattered Servants. Please read it. It's written by a, book, a man called Alan Scott. 
He's been serving in Northern Ireland. And they have been seeing, he just felt so challenged by all this stuff. Why am I not doing this? Why am I not seeing this? He started to go out on the streets, pray for healing for people. Not everyone was healed, but many people were. Started to establish something that was just amazing, where people have been coming to know Jesus at rates never seen. That's Northern Ireland, so it's not so different from here, is it? It's not like India, obviously, that's different. No, we need to spend the time in the presence of God first. If we just go out there, we're going to fall flat on our face. But if we're devoted to Jesus, filled with his Holy Spirit, we can see amazing things. And then it went on in Acts chapter 2. It doesn't get any easier, by the way. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Well, the idea of living in community kind of is attractive, isn't it? I mean, when we read that thing, oh, that's lovely, isn't it? So we feel kind of simultaneously attracted to the idea and then repelled by it. Because, like, well, personally, I'm an introvert and I need my own space. And the thought of living in community with lots of other people. And then I'd have to be well-behaved, like, all the time, wouldn't I? Because, like, you would see... And then when there was only one Rolo left, I'd have to share it. And that'd be super disappointing, wouldn't it? And we have this idea that living in community would be this amazing thing, and it kind of would. But then we know ourselves. Leave alone everybody else. We don't even need to worry about everyone else. We just know ourselves and know how difficult that would be. We long for those life-affirming benefits, don't we? You know, never to, never to feel lonely, not alone, but lonely. Or always to have someone else to do the washing up for us. <laughs> to maybe have some of our meals cooked. To feel loved and accepted and valued for exactly who we are. To have people know what we really like and still care about us. You know, to get all the benefits of all the gifts and strengths that we have here in this room and beyond. It's like, let's pool all that. To not have to worry about my mortgage because we just have one. And then, like, we you know, it all sounds quite cool, doesn't it? But actually, we resist its demands, don't we? I don't want to give up my independence. Do you? Some of you are more honest than others. I like my own space. What happens if you want to decorate the rooms and I don't like them? What happens if you cook something for tea? I don't like that. You know, there's all sorts of things that we resist and much deeper things. Like, you will know me, that I will have to change that you will have to change, that we'll have to love each other through some really tough stuff. We'll have to forgive each other for doing things intentional and unintentional. We'll have to be merciful and a lot more patient. That's quite hard. Now, we can be a bit idealistic about the church in Acts, and I think there is context there. You know, they had heard Jesus say, I'm going back to heaven and soon I'm going to come back. And they heard the word soon, and they thought that means soon. So actually, it was kind of a bit easier. So they had a sense that this wasn't going to go on for a really long time. So maybe they could bear with each other for a short amount of time. Jesus' version of the word soon is quite similar to my son's version of the word soon. <laughs> they also had the context of ever-increasing persecution. 
That when you're having opposition from the outside, you draw together. I mean, we kind of get that, don't we? We understand it in terms of the sort of war mentality that people still remember and speak about. That when there was opposition against us, the whole Britain pulled together. You know, there's that sense of when you're opposed, you, you stick together. And, and they had that ever increasingly. They were a minority group and marginalised so they needed to serve each other. There was no social security. There wasn't even universal credit. There was nothing. If you didn't help each other, then you would have nothing. And my friends, that is exactly the situation for many of our sisters and brothers across the globe today. Exactly the same. Persecution, marginalization, minority, no help from the government because it says Christian. And how they have to live together like this and serve each other and share with each other because that's all they have. You know, it reminded me of a cartoon that I saw a good while ago. Some of you will be familiar with it. It's, um, it's a cartoon of a chicken and a pig. And they're standing in front of a poster um, from a charity which is asking them to help feed the hungry. And the chicken says, we should donate some ham and eggs. And the pig says... For you, it's a contribution. For me, it would be total sacrifice. <laughs> and it begs the question, do we contribute or do we sacrifice? And that's not an easy question for any of us, is it? But this is about the kingdom of God, the rule of God. It's about the fact that we have asked Jesus to be Lord of our lives. There can only ever be one Lord. Somebody said he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. So is everything submitted to him? Is everything belong to him? Do I belong to him? Does everything I own belong to him? Because I'm just a steward of the things that he's gifted to me for my life. But it all belongs to him, really. That's quite challenging, isn't it? See, it's when Jesus is Lord that we have the potential for this kind of generosity, this kind of service, this kind of embodying justice in our world. We have a bit of a joke with the Willets. Can't see any Willets here. I think one's in Sun they're in Sunday Gang. Because they live opposite us. And we both have a key to each other's houses and we have this shared larder. So when we run out of things, we, we normally ring just out of courtesy, but otherwise we just go in and we just borrow whatever we need from the shared larder. And on occasions we remember to put it back again. And it kind of, kind of comes around. You know, it's nice. It's really nice. It's just a little, little small bit. It's very uncostly, really. Something about living together, serving each other, being community together. And it was this multifaceted witness they had in chapter 2 and verse 46. It says here, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. It's both their houses, their homes, those that had homes, bearing in mind that about 40% of the population were slaves at that point, some of them had houses. They met together in the houses. But they met every day in the temples. The pattern of their lives was around devotion, around finding more about Jesus, about being together, 
Yeah, our lives maybe look a bit different now, but it's this pattern that this is the main thing, and it begs this question, doesn't it? Is it our hobby or our priority? I mean, we have so many hobbies, so many things we like doing, so many things that are good for us to do. And where is Jesus in the middle of that? Is he our priority? Is his family our priority? Or is it just a hobby? Archbishop William Temple said this, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. But actually for many decades, the church only existed for those who were its members. And I think that you know, there were those like William Wilberforce, for example, who, who saw a different reality. Thank God for people like him. And actually over these last couple of decades, we've started to see that again, that the church is less just for us and actually much more about the benefit of those who are not yet in the church. Because at the end of that verse, it says, they broke bread in their homes, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They Somehow, they're meeting together to know Jesus to be in community, the way they loved each other and gave generously to each other, earn them favor with everybody. You know, I feel so grateful right now that in our town, the church has the favor of the community. That's never, ever something that we take for granted. And whenever there's hiccups for all manner of reasons, it's one of the things that we feel most concerned about No, people are not that bothered about whether we have drums or an organ. They are not really that bothered about the label that we put over the door. They are not bothered about our kind of church governance. They want to see what love looks like worked out. And through the things that we've been able to do together as the church, with the help of brilliant organizations like Christians Against Poverty, who've stimulated that sense of needing to be out there, through our food bank, through the way that we serve older people at lunch club, through the way that our messy hands volunteers not just put on a playgroup, but care about every toy for every child and every parent or carer who comes through that door. It's the way that we demonstrate love. It's the way that we help each other that communicates something beyond to people outside. And they say, you have favor with us. And I have literally had that said to me by people in the council, by people at the school gate. That is a wonderful privilege, comes out of being devoted to Jesus. The more we've become devoted to Jesus and put him first, the more favor. They had the favor of all the people. You know, at that time, the Greek philosophical writings described an idealized community with ethics, friendship, and mutuality. And they said, oh, well, these things can only be realized through social and political arrangements. Well, there was someone a number of centuries later who said some very similar things. His name was Karl Marx. We just need to get people to all have exactly the same, to live in the same kind of homes, to have the same income, to have their heating turned on at the same date. I mean, seriously, like that, when we went to Kosovo, that was what they said. 
Sorry, there's no heating. It comes on on the 5th of November or whatever it was. Everyone had it the same. Communism as an ideal is amazing. It's amazing. Isn't that what we should all want? That we are equal, that we have equal stuff, that we're valued in that sense. Everyone has work. Everyone has a place in society. As an ideal, much to commend it as a realistic way of living with our selfish hearts, it's just come to dust, hasn't it? Because only Jesus can do these things in us. Only the power of the Holy Spirit can make me a different person than I naturally would be. Only Jesus draws people together with one purpose. He unites us, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Wow. I mean, we have seen a little bit of that. It's a trickle. like to see a flood. But God did it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. All these signs and wonders broke out all over the place. Their generosity and love and care for one another was extreme in a good way. And God added to their number. I find that such a relief. Such a relief. We need to do the bit we do. But as we do that, it bubbles over. There's an authenticity in the way that we share about Jesus. Have you ever thought to yourself, I can't say anything about being Christian because they'll ask me what difference it makes in my life and it doesn't make any. So I can't say anything. But when we... When we're devoted to Jesus and when we see these things start to change in our own lives and in our church and within the community, and what, then when someone says, what difference does he make? Well, then you talk and it's real and it's authentic and people see your authenticity. They might not care whether your sentence is in the right order or whether you've got all the right facts and figures or you can quote the right reference from the Bible, but they see real. I mean, our relationship with Jesus is real. And what we have to say about him will be real. And out of that, people come to Jesus and are added into the community. And the word that we felt that God had given to us was the word more. But the word more only goes with the word devoted. We can't have more just because it would make us feel better. We have more as we're devoted to him. So we're going to spend a bit of time in worship together. I haven't asked anybody about this, by the way. I'm going to do this first. Sorry, I don't mind if you get organised. Is there anybody here who would like to share about something where they've seen the power of the Holy Spirit at work? Maybe they've seen somebody be healed or seen something amazing. They've, or a situation where they've felt and experienced the awe of God. Helen, this is going to all be really short, by the way. I didn't say that because it was you. I, just, no. uh, <laughs> I've, I haven't said this story to many people because it is a very precious story. Um, but I was at a prayer conference a number of years ago. We were all there as a family. And it was at that time just when things were really stirring. 
And I'd been down to the ladies, which were down lots of flights of stairs. And coming back up, I turned around the corner, and there was a wall. And I could see people walking past me, and I thought, how, how are they moving? Because I could not move. And Wellspring was mm. just starting to play worship. And the power of God was so strong. I understood suddenly what it meant when they said the priest could not stand mm. in the temple. Mm. And after what seemed like a long time, it was a couple of minutes probably, I managed very, very slowly to walk up the stairs mm. and into the back of the room and just lie down. And there is something so indescribable about that level of presence that you dare not, you dare not think about any credits, any, anything other than God hmm. and realizing he is. And thank you so much, Helen. Thank you. No, it's good to encourage each other. This isn't my church, it's our church. <laughs> Anybody else would like to share anything? You might need to come to me, Mick. Those of you in the next row better get prepared because it's obviously going backwards. Um, yeah, Alpha. I've seen the power of Alpha. I've seen the power of, of committed Christians getting together to share God's love with other people. Uh, and when you talk about what a transformation it has been, and I've seen that happen where one particular person uh, has said that they would not be here alive mm. were it not for Alpha and for God mm. movement in their life. Mm. Now that's transformation. Mm. Got another minute to think. <laughs> a couple of weeks a couple of weeks ago um, I told you about um, my friend's baby, baby Ben. Um, and one part of the story that I really love is that um, his mum, um, uh, who's called Fran, um, worked as an obsgyny doctor whilst she was pregnant, knowing that the baby had a prognosis of uh, not surviving longer than a week after birth. He's now six months old. Yeah. Um, but when she went back with the baby to the obsgyny um, ward, um, one of her colleagues said, oh, was it just a misdiagnosis then? And one of the consultants who wasn't a Christian overheard and said, by no means was it a misdiagnosis. This was a miracle. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Al. Anyone else? Bernard. I could go on all day. I'm afraid you're going to have to... Katie says I mustn't, sir. Lisa says I mustn't. Um, two prayer answers to prayer from our, uh, a former church. Um, 
Very, very different. One was that when a lady called Mary stood up at an evening service and said, please pray for me, my chickens have stopped laying. <laughs> and everybody did what some of you have just giggled. You're thinking this is far too trivial. But the, the elder who was in charge that evening said, no, this is important to Mary, therefore it's important to God. We'll pray for Mary's chickens to start laying. And within a week they did. Uh, other incidents, answer to prayer. A little boy, one of the church families, had fallen out of a tree and in agony was rushed to hospital at High Wycombe. Seen in casualty, uh, it was the sort of fracture where the bone sticks out of the leg. So the casualty specialist said, oh, it's obvious what we've got here, but we need to have an x-ray so that we can see how to best set the the fracture. So he was taken up to x-ray and while he was waiting for x-ray his dad phoned the church where there was a prayer meeting in progress so they prayed. Now previous to this the little lad couldn't be touched he was in too much agony. When he came out of x-ray he was calm and absolutely um, absolutely fine. Went back down to A&E and they took the rug off him and said, where's the fracture? When the x-ray went down to A&E, there was not even a trace that a fracture had been there. Wow. Never mind no bones sticking out of the skin. And one of the, our elders, who happened to be his GP, went into the casualty the following Monday to see the A&E doctor, to see what the notes said. Because he said... There are loads of miracles, but very few of them get documented in the NHS. <laughs> and the doctor had showed him the notes. They'd drawn what the bone was looking like sticking out of the lad's leg and the results of the x-ray. And underneath he'd written, this has to be a miracle. And that was remote prayer. Mm, I'll stop there. I could go on and Thank on Thank you, and on. Bernard. Well, you know who to ask if you want some more stories. No, Anybody else? Irene. This is cool, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> when I started Hospital Chaplaincy Ministry about 20 years ago, I was at Warrington, and I used to go and visit on the Guyney Ward, and I got to talk to a lady who'd been there a couple of weeks and her husband. Nothing very much, just a chit-chat. Anyway, it was um, <clears throat> Christmas Eve. David and I went round on the uh, do carol service, and we sang outside her, her cubicle, you know. And um, anyway, after that, I went back to work the week later. And apparently, she was, um, she'd had last rites. And um, <clears throat> anyway, that morning, I was, uh, I think I must go and see her later on, see the family. And um, it was about five o'clock at night, and I'd been really busy in the day. And I f remembered, I must go and see this patient I just felt really compelled to. So I went back to her room. And when I went into the room, there was all the family there. Oh, gosh, what am I going to say? You know, she's going there thinking, oh, Lord. And I was absolutely shattered, but like a wet lettuce. Anyway, I went in and I sat down. I took hold of her hand. And I just said to her, I don't know why I said this. I just said, can you remember us um, singing carols outside your bedroom door? Now, this lady had been unconscious for 36 hours. And she woke up. She said, I want a drink. 
And the family looked at me, what have you done? I said, I don't think it's God. <laughs> <laughs> and I went outside and there was a bit of a commotion outside. And, you know, what did you do in there? I said, nothing. I just, just God, you know. Anyway, <laughs> I went back a week later and I was, you know, quite surprised about this. And there she was with the husband, sitting talking. And I was able to share the gospel with them on two separate occasions. And, um, and unfortunately, she did die the day before her 70th birthday. And I will never know how she responded, but I know she was very keen to, she was very open to receive. So, you know, it's not just, you don't always see results. We're not expected to. It's just being obedient mm. to what the Holy Spirit's saying to us. Absolutely. Thank you, Irene. This is not as dramatic as some of the other ones that I've been hearing, but um, it was um, ha happened to me at work. Um, I can't remember exactly when it might have been last week, even. And patients put on the end of my list, tired and all the rest of it. And I've already seen that she's spoken to one of my colleagues, and there's a lot going on in her life. And I think this is not what I need at the end of the day. <laughs> and um, that's that's the very human bit. And sort of quick sort of prayer because I'd seen what was in the notes and. She was struggling because her daughter um, died. I didn't know the circumstances a few weeks previously, and she was feeling a real mess. But she's there on the end of my list, and so I'm able to sit there and talk to her and say, I know a little bit about how that feels. Mm. I know mm. it's different, but I've lost a child too. Mm. How did you cope? And I said, well, the difference is Jesus. And I was able to say that in the consulting room because wow. she asked me. She actually, actually, before that, she even asked me, do you think there's anything after? Hmm. As a doctor, well, so I can't tell you as a doctor, but as a Christian, <laughs> <laughs> her brother's a Christian hmm. and has taken her to church a couple of times. I don't know where it'll take hmm. it, but um, it was just a little opportunity that you don't often get. Hmm. And, I was, and because of things that I have gone through mm. and the fact that Jesus has walked me through that mm. and made a difference to me mm. I just get that little window sometimes mm. brilliant thanks Esther Dave Sage you're getting your courage up now I can tell again it's always trying to think of which one but uh, <laughs> as some of you know um, Tom our Tom had a massive fall and I, and I wasn't going to say anything, but it's actually to do with the food bank and we're stepping yeah. out because it was the day before Phil started as the food bank manager and we were up at Brimham Rocks and Tom hadn't quite realised how high he'd got. Um, as he, his words, I made the jump, Dad. And he jumped from one rock to the other um, and he'd actually fallen probably over 20 feet. And um, we just heard somebody coming round from the rock saying, is there a Phil here? And you get that sort of feeling in your stomach. Mm -hmm. And as I was running to find him, I went in my head, well, he's conscious and he remembers mum's name. Mm -hmm. But we went to A&E at Harrogate. For some reason, we thought we'll just go in the car. We got there and they said, we don't normally see kids who fall off Brimham Rocks. They normally get flown to, to Leeds. We were like, oh, crumbs, okay. And we didn't quite realise how high it was. We went back a year later and it literally was 20 feet. Mm -hmm. And throughout the time of being in A&E, he had, you know, checkups, x-rays, he had CT scans, and they just found nothing wrong. And the next week he had time off school 
funnily enough. And I said to him, walking down the street, how high on that building was it that you fell, do you think? And he went, above the, the gutters. And we were, you know, we, as soon as it happened, we, we even texted um, Lisa and Phil, and people were praying. Mm -hmm. And we can't explain that. It must have been miraculous, because, you know, uh, you know kids bounce and things, but <laughs> 20 feet, I mean, that has to be a miracle. Mm -hmm. That has got to be, you know, angels holding you up or whatever, I don't know. But, um, but it was all around Phil stepping out yeah. into the food bank role. Yeah. And, you know, there was other things that were flying about at that time. Um, but God was amazing. Cool. Thank you, Dave. Right. Well, I think we should respond to God and share more stories like there's other weeks. You know, it's not the last time.